My name is Kateri Zuni, and I am speaking with Sam Quinones. Sam is a journalist and writer of the acclaimed book Dreamland, which gives an eye-opening and poignant account of the opiate epidemic in the U.S. Welcome to Generation Justice. Sam, can I have you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Sam Quinones. I'm a journalist and author of the book Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Tell me, how did you become interested in the topic? Really, I, I kind of backed into this story. I had lived in Mexico for 10 years. I had done a lot of work writing about immigration, small Mexican villages, many parts of the country. And in the 1990s into the 2000s, that's really where my focus was. I came back to the United States, got a job with the L.A. Times in 2004. That, that year and really into 2005, the Mexican drug war kicked off. And in 2008, I was put on a team of, of reporters to cover that drug war. My job was really to cover how drugs were, were trafficked across the United States once they crossed the border. And so that's what I was doing. And I came upon a series of stories of overdose deaths to black tar heroin in Huntington, West Virginia, a state that was unaware that it had any demand for heroin at all. And yet here were people dying of uh, heroin that was made only in Mexico and the quantities were enough to kill lots of people in a very short period of time. So the way I entered this story was really trying to understand how Mexican heroin dealers were doing such good business. I really had missed entirely the whole pain revolution because I had been in Mexico during the years when it was happening. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. So I really backed into it, and it was only after getting into that story that I realized the real story, the big story, was that uh, this pain revolution that had changed the minds of doctors all across the country and turned them all, many of them, into converts to very aggressive uh, prescribing of these pills, and that that is what had led people in states like West Virginia and many others to grow addicted to heroin, and then realizing, oh, behind that is a much bigger story of, of pills, U.S. medicine, and doctors' uh, prescribing habits. Just kind of getting into the book right off, Sam, as you write it, of the opiate epidemic really has several moving parts. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the major contributors that you identified? Sure. Really, the first is a revolution in pain management in the United States that really promoted by kind of a young uh, group of pain specialists across the country, aided in that by the pharmaceutical uh, companies that made prescription narcotic painkillers. And it held that we were a country in pain an epidemic of pain, and we needed to treat it. And really, we had been falling down on the job because we had a tool with which to treat. And this became, through the beginning in the late 80s and then to the, the 90s, 1990s, really became conventional wisdom, promoted, as I said, by those two groups, but also by certain hospital institutions in America. A lot of pain specialists kind of got on that bandwagon, and eventually they convinced well, many, many doctors across the country, primary care doctors, ER docs, and the rest, that this was the case and that they ought to be prescribing these pills far more aggressively, far more liberally than they had been up to that point. These, these pills all contain drugs that are opiates that are very similar to heroin. Well, many people did get addicted. Many people got addicted from using these pills exactly as doctors prescribed. Others got addicted because there was now a massive new uh, supply of pills out there, and a lot of it leaked into the black market, and a lot of people used it recreationally, abused it, 
and got addicted. And many of those folks, a good number, it's not clear how many, but hundreds of thousands of folks eventually switched to heroin because heroin now was coming from Mexico, which made it far cheaper, far more potent, far, far more prevalent, and a real cheap alternative to the pills on the street, which were, which were extraordinarily expensive. Those three things over a period of like 20 years and some other stuff, that's a bare, bare bones idea of, of how we got to the point where we are uh, today. Yeah, thank you. In the book, we spend a lot of time in kind of those small towns. New Mexico, as you know, has highest rates of heroin use and overdose, especially in northern New Mexico. Can you give us an idea of the role that New Mexico has played in all this? In my own research, I came across the guy who basically brought black tar heroin to Santa Fe, to the Chimayo areas. That's my Nola Valley. That's really uh, this problem. And, and I think that was a telling part of it. People had lived, not well, but had lived with heroin addiction for decades. Mm -hmm. Because the heroin that they were using was, a lot of it, I believe, was coming from, the, from Vietnam at one point. Some of it was coming from Mexico, but it was very diluted. And these guys came with very, very high-potency heroin, and immediately people began dying. I think 2% of the area, the town of Chima Hill, died in a two-year period because they, these were veteran heroin addicts, yet they were used to a heroin that was much, much weaker. And that is really the story of this whole epidemic. Now that the heroin mostly comes now from Mexico, the, the other cartels, real cartels, have gotten involved in it in the last couple of years. And so what we're seeing now all across the country is what happened in New Mexico in the late 1990s, which was uh, new, new heroin coming in from Mexico. And what critique would you give of the media coverage that you have seen that has surrounded the issue? Well, I tell you, first, there wasn't a lot of it until the last year or so. I mean, I, I began this book 2012. Part of the problem was that the parents of the kids were unwilling to talk. People have said, you know, this is only an epidemic because it's lots of white kids dying, and that, that's why it's getting the attention. My response is, no, it was quiet because it was a white drug. The white families who have kids who are dying were mortified, embarrassed, horrified that their kids would get addicted to this drug that they believe was like the worst of all worst of illegal drugs. And so they kept quiet, and that's the situation I found for the first two, three years when I was writing my books. Some few were very much in the news, but compared to the numbers of kids who were dying, it just was, wasn't even, there was no comparison. It was just a minuscule, minuscule uh, number. Now you're seeing parents put heroin addiction in the obituaries of their kids on Facebook. They're on, they're on parent groups. There are all kinds of very public ways that they're acknowledging this, but that is only in the last year. And it's really because of that um, that we've had lots more um, uh, coverage of this, honestly. It, it, it has become a, uh, a, a thing to write about. And, it, and, of course, people now are tripping over themselves. Uh, everybody is you know, on the bandwagon to cover this thing now. Whereas um, my feeling was that this has been going on, as I said, for 15 years. No, one's really, no one really covered it much. No one covered the heroin, the pills to heroin connection. That to me, was obvious. I could see that, like, in 2009. But um, this was something that I was convinced of six years before. And what I found is now everybody wants to cover this topic, and it's getting kind of the press that it deserved for uh, years ago. Now it's all of a sudden on everybody's radar. 
I think you're right. It is an obvious connection. And when you write about, you know, drug companies kind of abusing statistics to make it look like an mm-hmm. opiate derivative drug could somehow be non-habit forming or non-addictive, just seems right. so counterintuitive to me. And I wonder, like, how is that even possible? Well, that's a very good question. And that's, uh, I, I think partly what happened was this. Americans became almost childish in their demands to be fixed. And so what ended up happening was all these doctors became kind of under the gun. And at the same time they were hearing this, they were also hearing from the, from the pharmaceutical companies, and you know what, we have an answer for you. We have a solution, and it's easy, and it's quick, and you can end those appointments with your patient by pulling out a prescription pad and writing out a prescription. It's so easy. It's quick. And for a while, it does take care of the pain. The problem is it doesn't take care of it forever. It masks it, and a lot of people get addicted to it, and et cetera. But there was pressure on doctors. Doctors are need to reassess what they did, what they're doing, I believe, very, very deeply. But they were not the only ones here involved. We as Americans began to have this very simplistic attitude. We didn't want things that were complicated. We just wanted something to, to fix. Like one guy said in the, in the book, they viewed their, their bodies as cars and doctors were car mechanics and we were supposed to fix them. And that attitude, I believe, was really prevalent in, in the country, still is, I think. And that led doctors to look aggressively for some kind of solution. They're, the doctors, most doctors mean very well. They want to help people, and they, they, they felt that this was uh, something that they absolutely had to do, and along come these kind of specious studies or non-studies or whatever you want to call them, and the pharmaceutical companies taking it door-to-door with this very, very aggressive sales pitch. This was for years when there was this, uh, a sales force arms race in the pharmaceutical industry where every company was hiring more and more. In the early 90s, there was like 35,000 pharmaceutical sales reps by 2003 there was 120,000 you know it was like like the massive sales and and little by little the pressures on doctors there were financial pressures as well you can make a lot of money prescribing these pills etc all of that kind of changed and that's how you create a new conventional wisdom i guess yeah um i've i've heard you mention before that this book, specifically the title, is kind of a metaphor for America. Can you explain yeah. a little bit of that? Yes. I mean, the book comes from a swimming pool that existed in a town, a Rust Belt town, but at one time was a very thriving town in southern Ohio. Portsmouth, Ohio is the name of the town. And this town had a steel mill. It had shoe factories. It had a bunch of other businesses, a booming Main Street, uh, backed with businesses, and a real community. I mean, it had... All of this was provided this kind of immune system to a lot of social ills. The steel factory leaves in 1980. The the shoe factories have been leaving slowly. More of them leave. Main Street, uh, the people begin to leave. Main Street empties out. And in 1993, they closed this pool. This pool was like almost like the soul of the town. It was this place where everybody looked out for one another, where everybody saw one another. It was a very egalitarian place. It was a place where there was always more. The guy who owned the the pool for a long time was a shoe factory owner as well, and he didn't need the pool's money, so he reinvested the pool's money into improving the the grounds and buying more grounds. And it grew and grew until it was enough for everybody. Everybody was there. You know, everybody could be a part of this. And it was a wonderful place for everyone to grow up in community, not mm-hmm. isolated. The town turned inward. It was half the size it had been. 
Uh, Walmart literally replaced uh, the pool as a social spot where the only place you actually saw anybody anymore was at Walmart. You know, there's no public place where you could socialize anymore. Mm -hmm. And this left the town extraordinarily uh, vulnerable and been extraordinarily vulnerable to a drug. This drug was so isolating. Heroin and opiates are so isolating. They break everybody into like little individuals and nobody wants to be a part of anything. And you're fatalistic and that destroys the town further. And and from that, I, I drew a few lessons. But one was that, that isolation is heroin's natural habitat. And I tried to understand what is the common denominator between a very poor town now, like Portsmouth, and a very wealthy town like Charlotte or Portland, Oregon. And the, the one common denominator, why do these three towns all have the same problem? And the common denominator is that the isolation we feel in America today is in all three of those places. We, we may be wealthy, we may be middle class, we may be poor, but the isolation is tremendous. We're all, no one is, is outside anymore. Parks, nobody plays in the park. They dug up dreamland and they put in, literally, they put in a parking lot. That's exactly what they did. And all of this, it seems to me that the story of the pool in Portsmouth, Ohio, was the country's story in a certain way. Even though uh, much of the country is doing far better, of course, than Portsmouth, Ohio, it nevertheless was this a story of, of how if you create enough isolation, you will break down the societal immune system that your community has to a drug like heroin, and you will be awash, and that's kind of what we've done coast to coast, seems to me. Yeah, that's an important lesson to learn, embedding in Oh, community. I think so. It, it was not what I set out to write. I mean, I, I thought I was writing a crime book, a drug book, and in turn, it became a story more about who we become and what we become as Americans. Okay, great. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your work in this book and as a journalist. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest.